Hola, I'm Elias Torres, co-founder and CTO of Drift. You are listening to the American Dream Podcast. Did you know that Drift is part of just 2% of VC-backed startups led by Latin American founders? Well, I'm on a mission to change that. On this show, you will hear from leaders who have achieved their own version of the American Dream. We'll talk about what the process looked like to get there, the obstacles they faced along the way, and the work we still have to do to build the new face of a diverse corporate America. First thing we want to learn a little bit about is your career path and your guiding principles throughout your career. So first question there is, how did you think about deciding what companies to work for earlier in your career? And in particular, how did launching your career at IBM influence your journey as entrepreneur? Look, when anybody's being interviewed and stuff like that, they're all like just speaking in hindsight, right? It's like, who knows what, you know, when you're your age, what guiding principles do we know? That's just nonsense. So I'm not, I like to try to be real and not claim that I knew what I was doing. But I'll, I'll tell you some things that I kind of was not naturally drawn to, right? One of them is that I took risk, right? I wasn't my naivete being an immigrant and not knowing what was available, right, to ask and to offer, didn't equip me to be so confused trying to make a decision, right? I wasn't conflicted. I did not know McKinsey existed. I did not know Harvard existed. I did not know MIT existed when I arrived in this country in 1993. You know what I mean? And so it's like, I didn't have this pressure. Like I remember the, my peers at high school in Tampa, they were like, oh, we're going up north to Dartmouth or Princeton. And I was like, I'm going to USF. I need to live with my mother because we need to help pay for the house together, the condo that we bought, and I need a degree. I just knew I needed a degree, right? So I never had this extra information. So my, maybe the guiding principle is that don't overcomplicate decisions, right? Because nothing is final. And it's about learning, right? I've learned. I'm a learner. I learned fast on all the opportunities that I have had. Second, I was the risk taker, right? I left IBM after 10 years in search of this startup world, right? I'll give you an example. One of my friends, he was an engineer with me and I was his manager. And he graduated from Stanford Engineering CS. And then in 2010, two or three, he tells me, I'm, I'm going to go work for this company called Google. I didn't know anything. I, I worked for IBM. So I thought I was like, you know, I'm working in the best company in the world. And, and this guy's going to work for Google. And I didn't know anything about the Valley. I didn't know about startups. I had not read a book. I didn't know any information. And he goes, takes a job there and go works for that company. And so when people were jumping into startups, right, they're like so obsessed for finding the rocket ship right? The trillion dollar company or the promotion or the stock of becoming a millionaire. And when I went to, into the startup world, again, I was just naive. You know, I, I went and, and I started working part-time and I was in Boston and I said, I just wanted to be in a startup. And the only thing that I needed was I have three kids. I was like, can you please have money for a year? <laughs> like, I, can you not shut down in three months? Right. That was my perspective. I was not optimizing for amounts of shares. I wasn't optimizing. Salary is what I needed to live, right? And so don't overcomplicate things for this like perfect, trying to be better at guessing than VCs or than other entrepreneurs that have more experience, which is the right company, which is the best company, right? And so what I did is 
I work for David. And the main thing that you want to do is that it's not about titles necessarily, but you want to learn and you want to grow. You want to show that you've been giving more opportunities that you've learned and that you've been entrusted with more responsibilities in every place that you go, right? And another thing is that do try to have as long stints as you can in companies, right? Because if you're like a one year everywhere, it's not good, right? You know, I'm looking at people and it's going to hurt you. People don't think that that's going to hurt you, but I'm interviewing for a CRO position and I'm, I'm interviewing top candidates in the world, right? And I have some candidates that are like, they went to this company for one year. They went to this company and they sold. They were a CEO of this. You can see this crazy pattern in their, in the, in their resume that you're like, hmm. And now what I have is I've been getting coached on like, what is the perfect executive to hire for different stages? When I look at, at my resume, right, I can see a, a progression that makes sense, right? And it's like, I worked for 10 years at a company. So that shows people that I have stability, that I'm not ego-driven, that I'm, okay. Then I went and took a risk. Then I ran a small company. Then I ran a bigger company that had an outcome. Then I, you know, so you want to show a path that has consistent two, three years, you know, everywhere. And then you're getting better. You choose, you're making good decisions. You're not going to worse companies. So, but you don't have to have the perfect one from the get-go, from the first day. When did you know it was the right time to transition between companies like why was 10 years the right mark in IBM and when was the right time to transition amongst all the other companies you were at? That's a really good point. I'm going to tell you what happened. I, I just, I have different eras in IBM. I was working for a really amazing team. I worked for the, the team that put IBM on the internet, put IBM.com, did the largest traffic websites in the world. We brought instant messaging. My first job at IBM, I was building bots in 1999 on instant messaging. You know, it's like IRC bots and, you know, instant messaging. This was like the same company that built AIM, right? And so it's just interesting enough. So it was a great time. And I have eras at, at IBM where I was doing early learning how to be an engineer. Then I went to Harvard for a master's in computer science. So I got the chance that company paid for my education. Then I had a chance where I started representing IBM in uh, World Wide Web Standards, W3C, and I was working with Tim Berners-Lee and Semantic Web at the MIT C-Cell Lab, right? And so I was growing, and it's when after those things happened and I stopped growing and learning that I realized I needed to go somewhere else. Like I, I outgrew IBM, and, and there was not enough ability for me to, the more I learned how to execute and to be a, learn, I learned to be a visionary by working with visionaries. I learned how to ship product. I learned to work open source, and I learned to work, at a larger scale by learning how people design HTML, HTTP, right? And saying, that's how you think when you build something, right? I was learning about a lot of things, right? Product development, open source, legal, patents, usage, adoption that are all serving me well now that people didn't realize were useful, right? So when I stopped learning, I said, it's time. My personality is I, I want to make an impact. I want to make decisions. I want to take risks. It really wasn't about the rewards. It's like, uh, I just want to be happy and I took a chance, right? I think that's a good segue to talking a little bit about your transition to entrepreneurship. Can you tell us a little bit about the transition beyond the first stage and also go a little bit deeper in what you just talked about? What are aspects of your culture and background that you think help or strengths that you're able to leverage? Something that is fresh, right, with COVID right now is that I grew up in Nicaragua. And I grew up under communist 
Nicaragua. I had a car that said there was five residents in, in my household, my mother, my stepdad, and my two brothers. And so I would grab that card and I would go down the street and they would say, you get a pound of rice, you get a pound of beans, you get a bot- you get a, 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 this plasticky litter of milk and like maybe half a pound of sugar. And I would grab that in a basket that is like a wicker basket that was threaded. And I remember that. I remember the handles that I broke. I have a photographic memory. So I brought that and I would bring that, that food to the house. And the people would be like in the line, why are you doing this? Your parents are not doing My mother is working, right? And so they sent me. And we didn't have a maid or somebody, right? Because we were not like, we were lower middle class. She's a professional though. She's a doctor, a veterinarian. And so like, I got that and now we're COVID working from home and everybody's panicking and everybody's like, you know, struggling. And I want to separate. There are people that have no jobs, can't pay their bills. They might lose their homes. That is stressful. But there are people that have a job where they can pay for their stuff. And they're complaining because they can't go hang out they can go pot, right? And so try not to be too judgmental, but, or people at work. I didn't have stuff to eat. We can go to Whole Foods and buy food. And so it's like this kinds of times, companies are breaking, falling apart because they do not know how to react and they do not know. So that immigrant, that coming from the bottom, that scrappiness, that anti-entitlement view of the world is ex- very important. And we're now having a tough time. And this is where great companies are built. This is where great, people, entrepreneurs are, are built. And so all that upbringing that I've had allows me to see things from a different perspective than another founder that is like, you know, had never experienced that or had had only good times before, right? And so in the same way, it's like, I basically came here and I used to clean offices. I used to clean a dentist's office, pick up the trash, vacuum the rugs. And then to me, everything is icing to just not having a home in my country and then here have a, a home, right? And, and then first have an apartment, then be able to, that we could pay for it. We lived in a borrowed home for 15 years in, my, in Nicaragua. To have an apartment that we paid for, to have a condo, to have a house, everything is icing. So I don't complain about anything that I have. Everything is, is incredible. And so that gives me this mentality that there's no plan B for me. There is no alternative that I'm considering. Is my house bigger than this other house? Is this person has a house in Nantucket and I don't, I don't care. I'm here to build a great company. And is that my goal? Not exactly what I have or what credentialized that I put on my, on my resume. Driving specifically on we segue to crisis and managing in times of crisis, what do you think have been some of the most successful things you've done in these last couple of weeks at Drift and what do you think is setting Drift up for success? I think that one of the things that David did early on was we're big fans of Horowitz and uh, you know the book, what is it? What's hard, the book? hard Thing About Hard Things or something? Like hard Things About Hard Things. things. Yeah. And so it, when it talks about peacetime, wartime CEO. And so that's another thing, right? Are you a peacetime CEO in general? What's your personality? Are you a wartime CEO? And so David and I, we joke because we felt adrift that we were in peacetime CEO times last year because we had grown. We were wartime before that. I would talk to the team in the company at scale and I would say, you know, if you read the book Built from Scratch, which is about Home Depot, for example, and Lowe's, there's parts where they're talking about the competition between Home Depot and Lowe's was like they would have company meetings in the parking lots of Lowe's. It's like, you got to read that book. It's amazing, right? Our, you know, Arthur Blank, right? And uh, I think I forget the name of the other guy. It's like a Bernie or something. And it's like, they say, the competition is here 
to take away your children's education, right? You got to think about it. Like, you know, this is like, this is a war, right? Competitor is not, this is not friendly. This is not competition. This is nothing. They want nothing but your business to die. And it's the future of all of our employees. It's at stake, right? And so when, when I, I spoken in front of the company in the early days of the drift, I'd be like, competition, they want to take our children. And so there's posters around the office where people make fun of me and says that they're coming after your children. But it's that serious, right? And then last year, we were a little bit too peacetime, right? And David and I talked about it. And we we're like, that's not us. I don't, I'm not a peacetime person, right? I'm a, I'm a wartime, right? So this thing is the first thing was really change the mentality and tell everybody, this is wartime, right? And we have to think in that way. We have to focus. We have to understand the sacrifice is coming and there will be casualties, right? This is not a, like a time of like, let's all, that you mask it and then you're being hypocrite of saying like, no, 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 we love everybody, but nothing is going to happen and then things have to happen. And so, so we, from day one, we set the tone and said, hold fast. These are our principles, but anything can happen. We do not know. Nobody knows. This is something unprecedented, never seen before in the history of the world. And so nobody can promise anything of what's going to happen. And so the first one is mentally switching gears and then start making decisions fast, which is another principle at Drift, right? Which is seek feedback, not consensus, and also, you know, be biased for action. And so we're like, immediately we were like reviewing, we reviewed our hiring and didn't freeze it, but prioritize who we needed. And so we are hiring people, but we're not going to second, you know, make cash extension decisions, right? Like what is our runway? And we, we extended our runway under certain models to seven or eight quarters, right? Which is what, you know, what people were advised. Try to go for 24 months of ability to survive. And the other one is that we immediately assess what we need to be doing. We have a, a, the theme we kicked off is simplify, focus, and repeat. Let's find out what's working and can double down on that. And really understanding our product and, and really what is its position in the market. You want to build products that people need. There are painkillers. They're not vitamins. And so what we are learning is that, and this is something that we, we've been waiting. I've been waiting for this day because the market cannot just go up. Is that will people buy your product when the economic situation is not just climbing up, when, when money is just not laying around? And so we are finding that it's not Zoom levels, right? But if you notice the market, the days that the market is completely down and Zoom, everything is down by 20 points and Zoom is up by, by 0.03%. And so that says a lot, right? It's not like it's going 20% up, but it's like it goes up. It goes the opposite relationship. And so we have many businesses that are in the economy today that are not selling at all, yet Drift is selling. We are continuing selling and we're hitting really good goals despite the situation. And so that's a great sign. And we just need to figure out who should we be talking. There are people that are pushing deals to the following quarter. But you can see the pent-up demand and the desire of people who want to buy more of Drift in these times because it's critical to revenue, right? And to buyer experience. And so that, that's something that we're focusing right now and validating because that could mean a huge difference in spike in growth for Drift in six, nine months. Following up on that question, a lot of my classmates are thinking of setting up businesses in current times. What advice do you give to them in terms of doing what you just talked about, identifying what is a painkiller that they can provide that people will buy throughout times of crisis? Well, you want to understand there's a lot to think, right? It's, it's really comes down to like product development, 
right? And it's really understanding, for example, a lot of people are thinking, right, like how will the world change after this, right? The world will change. And so it, the more you can anticipate and nail that and go in that direction, that will be good. Second, the way you validate it is that from day one of Drift, you know, we always ask that question. When we started Drift, there was two of us at our rock climbing gym, David and I, and we were buying software, right? We were like, what do we need? <laughs> and it was like, Gmail. We claimed and we, we, we bought Slack, right? So we had Gmail, we had Slack. And then you start buying Gusto, HR, right? And then you go hire an accountant, you know? And so you start looking at that as like a, it's like a Maslow hierarchy, right? And you're like, when you start a business, what do you do? If you watch that, you see companies and you decide whether it's you, you, you watch a company from its infancy or you're going into a company that is an enterprise customer that has a scale problem that no one is solving, right? And so you go straight into the enterprise. But overall, pain uh, for us has worked really well because it's like the ability to talk to customers and to sell happens when you're small and happens when you're large. And so we've been transitioning and moving up the, the market, right? to go towards the enterprise, right? Because we've seen that they, they get more value out of Drift and they're more engaged and they churn less and they adopt it. When they adopt it, they adopt it really well, right? And so it's like, it's just in times, what are the top priorities in any business and what place do you hold in that is the way that I think about from day one of Drift, right? Continuing with this and the idea of like eventually starting startups, the last topic that I think a lot of people wanted to cover is around how your diverse being a diverse founder impacted or didn't impact your fundraising process and the process of starting a startup and how much David helped you through this. Yeah, I, I wish I could complain more about being Latin in the fundraising aspect of it, but I can, to be honest. I've been under David's shadow in, in a good way, right? And so when I went to join him to do Lookery, he already had fundraised, right, for Lookery. When we started Performable, he literally just said to me, I'll, I'll be right back. And he went to a meeting with CRV and, and came back with a $3 million check, right? It's like, and so that was the Series A for Performable. That's it. He just went to one meeting and because he already did compete and he already had done bold.com. And so he knew the firm. And so it was great. Then we did, we sold to HubSpot, right? And then Brian and Darmesh did all the fundraising there. So I didn't do any of that. My experience fundraising has been mostly a drift, right? Where I've been involved in all three rounds and every discussion on, on, the, on the VC side of it. And so it's been a little bit different because what? We raised from, from General Catalyst, we, gener we raised from CRB, and we raised from Sequoia. These are companies that know us already because they're, all of those were at HubSpot, right? And so we're, we're known quantity and they're respected and they knew better than anybody else what we had done at HubSpot. And so we found their support. Ezar from our first investor at Drift who just did a lunch and learn yesterday on Wednesday at the office. And he told them the stories like he invited us to lunch and he just said, here's a check for $10 million to David and Elias's company. And he just believes in teams, right? So the only thing I can say there is build relationships, right? But focus about the results, right? Not about the relationship. 
I will say though, the more I, I fundraise and I speak, it's like there is a network, right? There is a, who went to school together, who knows each other, who played polo together, who that kind of stuff that I don't have and I don't exercise and I can't. I have only been able to have my conversations. People only come and talk to me because they want a piece of my business that we created and it's valuable and it's going to make them money. And so that's, at the end of the day, that's the only way that we're going to be able to overcome the challenge. And, you know, there are people that get money in VCs because of the relationship, because of the color of their skin. I can guarantee you that. But, you know, we're not going to be able to overcome that. So we got to be building. And, and what I've done, I think, is something you guys should follow. is like align yourself with, with successful Latinos. There's a, there's a called Top Latin VCs or something. You know what I'm talking about? I don't, but I don't know if anyone else does. There's a page. Hold on. Let me see. I just got invited to this thing, to this WhatsApp channel, Top Latinx Tech Leaders. And so we're trying to raise awareness, right, of the people, right, that are that sometimes we feel like there's none, right? But we are there cranking and trying to find, claw our way in and, and bring success to this. And so, like, I would say go looking for companies like that, like I did with David, and then align and then go get that success, get the, get the stuff. And the, the success of companies you guys can, it's, it gets shared. It's not like I, I have like, this is drift success. I keep it by myself. Everybody in the company can use it in any way they want to, to their advantage, right? And we want you, that's why you come here to share in that value. And so by aligning yourself with other people in there, you can start building the relationships and you need success. And success will bring more success. And the more of us do it, the more we'll be able to tap and bring other people so we can eventually create a strong network, right? that we can fund each other, that we can prove to people, break the stereotype and say, you know what? They can be as successful as anybody else, right? Because no one has the secret to entrepreneurship and, and, to, and to build a great company. So we're learning that day by day. So it seems like the advice is find a good mentor, work hard, deliver results, and then the rest will follow. It sounds simple, right? Sounds work simple. Hard. Yeah, sounds simple. Yeah, yeah, not easy. Can you speak a little bit more about your relationship with David? What do you think has made him a really strong mentor and what are the things that the most important things you've learned from him? You want to align people that have that have good morals, right? That there's a wide spectrum, right? But I find David to be, you know, honest, right, in, in his business dealings, right? He's consistent, loyal, right? It's like he he rewards the right behaviors in meaning like he doesn't like everybody, but it's like, if you work really, if you, if you deliver results and stuff, like he, he appreciates that. Right. He just has a high bar of excellence in, in the people that he wants to work. And, and so I've learned from him to be that way too. And so there's been a contract, right? One is our diversity has helped us stick together, right? Because we're far and few. We come from similar beginnings. And so therefore we think along the same lines, right? Where we're not, complain he doesn't complain about having some some luxury or not having a luxury and, and neither do i so that allows us to build a company with the same principles we are opposite in personality he is an introvert and i'm an extrovert i want decisions made quickly he wants to think about them so that creates a tension between us right he's more demanding i'm, a, I'm i can be more complacent and so there's a tension in, in what we should be doing, how fast we, he's even more, if I'm a wartime CEO, he's even more wartime CEO. He's like global, like, you know, 
guerra del mundo level CEO. So like, he's way more paranoid, right? And so that only the paranoid will survive. And he reads and teaches a lot, has humility to be like, I don't know this and I learned this, right? So it's been good. Like I can trust him. He trusts me. We are humble in the way that we support each other. We are honest and, and, and upfront in our business dealings on how we make agreements. We disagree and commit. We, we keep going, right? And we don't go revisit the past, right? It's like we, you know, we will joke, you know. I said to him yesterday, like, I'm doing all this work. And I can't believe this. Next time, there's no next time. So we'll joke about equity and things like that as, as a joke, but it's never really emotional, right? It's never going to be creating a cancer in my, in my mind. So we, we're very careful. It's like a marriage that you want a marriage to endure where you're like, you don't want to be harboring things. We're here to build something together and we're better together than separate, right? And we have, we have to keep the, the pride in the ego in check. And it's like, he's the CEO. I'm, I'm, this, I'm the number two. When we first moved in into Berkeley in Boston, the woman that the security guard, she goes, when I walked in the first day that we moved into the office, she, saw, she sees me and she opens the elevator, the turnstile, and she goes, hi, you would drift? And I'm like, yeah. Are you number two? She says that to me. And I was just dying, right? And I'm like, I go, that's the worst thing you can tell the number two that is number two. You know, she goes, I saw a picture and it just gave me the sense, maybe because I'm shorter. I don't know. Ego brings you down. Every time, you know, sometimes when there's tension in a relationship, sometimes I can pinpoint it. It's, it's my ego affected me. And so the way that I solve it is by we're a team, we're working together, we're a partnership. We're going to accomplish more together than separate. And so, and so you want something that lasts and something that you have respect, you have trust, you're able to apologize, you're able to communicate it. It's a lot of fun and I'm thankful because he's taught me a lot and I can keep learning. And, and, and more and more, I, I seek to gain his respect in that he's seen me grow the most. Like he's kind of been like the same type of individual all along because he, he had 10 years before me of startups that I didn't have. But now he's seen me grow and, he, and he's like, once in a while, I get like a pat on the back. And like, yeah, you did better. You're different than you were. You were crazier when I first met you and way more unpredictable and impatient and as inexperienced, right? As, as less than you are now. So it's, it's been good. I like it. You mentioned your family that you decided to, when you decided to transition into becoming an entrepreneur, that you had three kids. My question for you is, how has your family influenced your professional career path? You know, learning how to deal in the business world, right, is a human endeavor, right? It's really about, under, it's about building relationships and having conversations with people. And so it, it's about growing up. And so there's a big difference me talking to, uh, I can go and talk to when I'm recruiting, I'm talking to people and selling, when I'm fundraising, when I'm supporting a customer. So the more you grow as an individual, well-rounded you become, the more you're able to, to use and influence the learnings in both directions, right? For example, I remember my kids in first grade and, and a teacher comes and says, this is a rubric of how you write the letter C. And so the teacher said to, to me, it's like, I'm teaching the kids the rubric of what makes a good letter C and how they can supervise each other to use the rubric to review somebody else's work and get feedback. And I remember how much it hit me that day. And I said, that's what we need. I need a rubric for engineering at HubSpot. And I need to go define that. And so people can rate each other instead of me rating them, you know? 
and I'm just basic stuff that I didn't know. When I was in school, I, you know, if they were using that method, I didn't pay attention to it, right? And so there's a lot about having teenage children. There's a lot about having toddlers. It's about it teaches you about you're going to be at work and you have things at home and then you have to come back and you have to bathe the kids and put them to bed and then you continue working, right? That you might not understand with before you have a family, right? And so, or, you know, it gives me more empathy when I'm hiring individuals that have family, when I'm hiring women that are pregnant. I have women come to me and say during an interview, like, hey, you know, it's like, I'm pregnant and is that, is that a problem for you? And I'm like, no, that's like, I have three children, right? It's, it's not a, that's not a problem. It's like, just let's plan ahead. And like, if I want you, I want you here for 10 years in this company. Why would I not want that, right? And so it gives me a whole different depth to understand people that are in college, people that are in relationships, people that are going to go build a partnership and then hopefully start a family. And then what? how do you, the evolution of people at work? I mean, at Drift, we're growing into a company five years old. And we just you see how many babies we have and families and stuff. I saw that same thing happen at HubSpot in the growth, right? So the, all those things, what I do here affects how I treat people at the office, how I'm at the office. It's teaching me to be over here, find balance. I have been a very different individual through every different company. There were days in Lookery and, and, and Performa where I would be here all day on Saturday coding and, and, and the family was like, let's do something. And I was like, I'm going to finish this soon and then it would be 4 p.m. and the Saturday went and I didn't do anything, right? And so I can help other people advice and sometimes you have to do that. And sometimes you say, no, and now I do some calls here and there, but I try not to, you know, I'm focusing right now on like the quality time that we have with our teenager kids before they go to college. So all that stuff to me, you got to be a learner, right? You got to be thinking about how that helps. You got to learn how to learn and how to realize what you're learning and then how to see the applications of it. That's key. And then the whole thing will just snowball. What was your experience as a business leader during the recession in 2008, 2009? Maybe like what were some of the lessons that you learned there? And then I'm curious about in this new context, like what are some of the similarities or differences that you are forming ideas around how the world might be different moving forward? Things that I learned from that one. I left IBM two weeks later, 2008 recession hits. I make $110,000 salary after 10 years at IBM. I have three kids at home, all under the age of four. My wife works, she doesn't have a job. She's at the home all the time with the kids. I have a home in Lowell, Massachusetts, 1,500 square feet, $290,000. I have three months of cash in the bank and I have about 100K in my, in my 401k. The year before I had put in real estate index funds, I had nothing. And I worked for a 10-person startup that lays off half of the team. So at that time, what did I learn? All things pass. Nothing is the end of the world, right? If my 401k dropped and I had no savings, don't worry about it, right? You don't worry. When something like that happens, you don't stress and say that the world ended. You worry about the world ending the day the world ended. Don't worry about it before that, right? I will tell you, in two years, the market will start moving back in the direction, right? And if you don't do anything crazy, like go sell all your stuff and go to, just, just stay put, it is what it is, patience, this thing usually will fix itself. The other is that as long as we have health, you know, as long as we have a roof, if not, we go find another roof, we can, you know, there are ways to solve the problems. Again, not panicking. We have the potential for great lives, great careers. 
And so like, there are people that are in a worse situation that they can't dig themselves out. We are in a position that we can dig ourselves out of it. I, I think I'm generalizing, right? Second, I learned that I enjoy these times better because you don't have as much distraction from the competition. I'm just sorry to be saying this way, be crass, right? It's like when we were building Performable, we had $3 million in funding. Nobody could get fundraising, right? So I didn't have like a million companies like biting at my ankles and saying like, oh yeah, we can do it. We can get money. So it definitely simplifies the market and it, it only lets the best ones rise out, you know, in that environment. It's a true test of leadership and capabilities and endurance and persistence, right? And, and so I, I like that because sometimes you're working so hard and you're doing so, and, and it, people can't tell the difference between a five-person chat company and Drift, right? People are like, oh, it looks like they're better than Drift. People go present themselves to VCs. We're the Drift killer, five-person company, five customers. Like, stop wasting my time, right? It's like, I got to focus on Salesforce. I got to focus on the, on, the, on the big fish. And so I learned that the better prepared you are for a downturn, the more advantages you're going to have to come out and spring back with a force. And so you have to be thinking right now, what can you do to prepare during this time to be ready and not be caught off guard? It's like there, I saw some, some Instagram meme or something that says, if you're not everything you could be, why are you chilling so much, right? Don't be chilling, right? It's like, it's like, unless you're like made, right? Then there's no time to be wasting. You got to be preparing, learning, networking, building, and learning skills, doing work. So that's kind of like what the way I see it. So those are the things I'm carrying over to this one. It's like, this is the time where we can create a new chapter for Drift. We have a vision of building an enduring company. And we've been doing really well. But now coming back out of this is the opportunity to say to people, like, we endured that and we doubled and we became stronger. And so we are preparing ourselves. We're preparing our product. I'm pushing the bar in every way to the team and say, we're not going to sit still and just worry about this. We're going to get better. Thanks for listening to the American Dream Podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss when a new episode drops. If you like this episode, please leave a six-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're interested in learning more about my American Dream mission, subscribe to my newsletter linked in the show notes.